This is episode 34 of Ripe Good Scholar, City Comedies. I think I just came up with an answer to my own question. Yes. There weren't that many city comedies to copy. That's why Shakespeare didn't write them. (laughs) (laughs) We love Shakespeare, but he copied. This is Ian Desher, author of the William Shakespeare's Star Wars and Pop Shakespeare series, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Today, we will be looking at a very popular genre during Shakespeare's lifetime, the city comedy. Shakespeare, however, only penned one city comedy, The Merry Wives of Windsor. The Merry Wives of Windsor is a hilarious play and an excellent example of the genre, so it's a pity that Shakespeare only ever wrote one. We speculate on our theories as to why that may be as we explore the genre and The Merry Wives. For this episode, I read Alexander Legat's book, Citizen Comedy in the Age of Shakespeare. If you want to check out that book, a summary of The Merry Wives of Windsor, and so much more, head over to ripegoodscholar.com EP34. Now, let's head to Windsor. Let's talk about city comedies. All right. Well, ever since we first saw Merry Wives of Windsor, and kind of heard that term city comedy, I always found it very interesting. Yeah. Merry Wives of Windsor was one that I did not know really at all the first time we saw it. Um, We went to that performance of Shakespeare in the Park and saw it, and it was like, oh my gosh, this is hilarious. Why is this one that isn't just all the time? Right? It was so funny. Then, after we saw the Shakespeare in the Park performance, we went to the staged performance that they did, I think a couple years later, um, the Cincinnati Shakespeare Company did. And we were fortunate enough to be there on their opening night. And we got to see a professor from Xavier University talk about city comedy and what it was and what it meant. And I that was the first time I had ever heard that term. Yeah, and I, I think it makes a certain degree of sense because she said this was Shakespeare's only city comedy. Yes. And a lot of Shakespeare's comedies are kind of more high concept and agrarian. Definitely. And so I just, I found it very interesting and I I just feel also like the Merry Wives of Windsor is just an underappreciated gem. It's a hilarious play. I absolutely love it. Now, as I dove in a little deeper, because as this Xavier professor described it like a sitcom, you know, where you're kind of looking into the lives of 
people. And so as I started diving more into what it was, that still is a very applicable definition. But what I found was that people have a lot of trouble pinning down exactly what a city comedy is. It's kind of one of those things where like, well, we know what it's not. So it's hard to create an all-encompassing definition of what a city comedy is when we look at all of the city comedies that were written during that time, only one of which was written by Shakespeare. Interesting. I would have thought that the definition would be pretty similar to a sitcom. I mean, now we're going to go on a tangent, but define sitcom. Sure. A sitcom is a television show that typically lasts about 22 minutes and focuses its comedy on the general lives of a group of people. I mean, good job. It's just it's it's broad. Oh, it's super broad. The definition actually differs from what you might think, because when you hear city comedy, you think, well, like it's in a city. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, Merry Wives of Windsor is kind of set in the countryside. Yeah, exactly. How Alexander Legat in Citizen Comedy in the Age of Shakespeare put it in his book, first and foremost, they are comedies which are set in a predominantly middle class social milieu. But even this premise alone can be more complex than it may seem on the surface. Because if we even look at kind of the broader definition, you know, it's not about the nobility. It's not really about like lower class people. It's not about great events in history or anything like that. It's just about people. And what makes it challenging is what is middle class was difficult to define. Yeah, I think especially American listeners are going to have a very different take on that term than uh, British ones. In the United States, calling yourself middle class is desirable. You want to be middle class. People who make lots and lots of money every year still define themselves as middle class regularly in surveys, even though they might be in the richest 2% of America. The idea of being in every man is admirable and ha has a degree of social currency. In the United Kingdom, there's a bit more of a dismissive attitude towards being middle class. Uh, it's kind of an insult to say, oh, that's so middle class. I did not know that. Middle class were, I mean, people who did well for themselves. Like, they had money. They had a, even a decent amount of money. They owned property. They owned nice houses. They uh, had servants, you know, stuff like that. But they weren't the nobility. Yeah, I think there's a there's a perception that they were imitating the nobility, which is something that others saw as degrading themselves. Which, when you think about how the middle class arose, really makes sense how that kind of stereotype came up. It wasn't that far back that, no, you could not rise the ranks. You Even as a merchant, you wouldn't be middle class. <laughs> Merchants would just be uh, wealthy poors. Basic point, social class is almost never a clear-cut boundary. It's, it's fluid. You can't say, like, between this wage and this wage is middle class. So, but typically at the time, if we're talking middle class, we're looking at merchants, shopkeepers, and craftsmen. And it included these people even if they were wealthy enough to employ other people. They were still considered middle class. Yeah. But we also would see, as we see with Paige and Ford in Merry Wives of Windsor, they have no specific occupation. We don't know. We don't, I mean, obviously they must do something besides like run around causing shenanigans. 
but they live in a comfortable life without being aristocratic. Yeah. To me, that's very interesting that this popular type of play was one that looked into the lives of the middle class. It, it makes sense because at the, in Elizabethan times, you had this rising middle class and even the lower classes were gaining more freedom. They had a greater ability to negotiate for higher wages and they still lived in this caste system where who was an aristocrat was very much set in stone from birth. And no matter how wealthy you became there was still a barrier that could not be crossed all of these grand stories that had been told up until that point had been about the upper classes but now you're having people who finally have a chance to see relatable stories told yeah definitely because even when we think of the stories that are made up you have dukes you have kings it's still the nobility yeah like there's in fairy tales, there's a princess and a prince. And even looking at Shakespeare, as you like it, the duke is overthrown and roughly is into the forest. In The Tempest, he's a duke. You know, Romeo and Juliet. Twelfth Night. Ev yeah, everyone is at least a count. Even Two Gentlemen of Verona, which has some of the worst people in Shakespeare. They're all nobility. Yeah, because I mean, even if, it, even if we don't know their specific title, they're like going to court. Like, they're going to join the king's court. They're the nobility. They're not just, like, there to work. Yeah. You know, you look at Bertram and as you like it. I think it's worth looking into, and, and I don't know that we have time for it today, but it will be interesting to look into why Shakespeare liked telling these grand tales as opposed to the city comedy. I were to guess, and this is absolute slapdash guessing, it's because... He liked having fabulously wealthy patrons. Yeah, but so did the other ones. Well, yeah, but if you you can uh, make your buck uh, catering exclusively to the poor's, then, you know, good on you. But he was, you know, eventually, eventually they were the, the, the kingsmen. Well, yeah, but I mean, Ben Johnson wrote a lot of city comedies. Really? Mm -hmm. That's surprising because he was very much not about the poor. Yeah, I know. So what's interesting about that is why I think a lot of people do like the city comedies, even if they are trying to cater to the nobility, is the city comedy, it's kind of, they, they embrace the bodier side of life. Ooh. You know, because they aren't telling grand stories of grand people, they're able to embrace, as again, um, Legat put it, the knavery of the world. There is a keen awareness of the knavery of the world, an awareness in which there is often as much relish as criticism. And this knavery is described in topical terms. It is not so much a universal quality as a symptom of the way we live now, a reflection of the passing moment. Now, a lot of these plays were social satire. Okay. Which I think that even the nobility could appreciate. I mean, it's kind of like a look into like... You know, they're all like, the middle class, but like, ooh, what are, what are they doing? It, it's, it must have seemed risque to look at the, the body antics of uh, the middle class when there's no need to reinforce a class structure within the text. I think I just came up with an answer to my own question. Yes. There weren't that many city comedies to copy. That's why Shakespeare didn't write them. <laughs> <laughs> 
We love Shakespeare, but he copied. And and as these plays dove into social satire, that's part of the reason they were also extremely popular after the Restoration, which we talked about in a previous episode. But and Shakespeare was not super popular in the, during the Restoration. The the guy who got all the second rate plays got Shakespeare, and he just happened to make good plays. Yeah, definite. As they kind of embrace those bodier sides of life, they're the typical topics covered were about sex and money. Yeah. How to earn money, how to spend it, how to get a wife, and how to keep her. Now, a lot of the times, these topics were used as kind of like a lesson to the protagonist, (coughs) Master Ford. Honestly, it kind of reminds me of old morality plays, but without being terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think they did evolve out of the morality plays. So, one thing, though, with these kind of similar topics covered is that we do have similar tropes that we'll see again and again in comedy plays. And that's what um, Alexander Legat's book is about. Now, of course, in Mary Wise of Windsor, we see quite a few city comedy tropes because it is in fact a city comedy. We'll start with actually the subplot of Anne Page and finding a suitor for her. So if you'll recall, Anne Page, both her parents have chosen a suitor. They're trying to like nudge him in there and she doesn't really want either of them. Now, this subplot specifically draws inspiration um, from what is the Italian equivalent of a city comedy. It's very Italian. A lot of stuff Shakespeare did is very Italian. Was this Commedia dell'arte or is it pre-Commedia dell'arte? I think it was Commedia dell'arte. Especially the aspect of the daughter choosing her own suitor and running off with him. But, you know, since it's a comedy, we're all happy at the end. <laughs> what I found interesting is that there's another element of the subplot that we do see uh, mentioned in Legat's book. And he calls it, Who Wears the Breeches? What's this? Um, that's the the concept of it, there were a couple different kind of elements of that of the who wears the breeches different iterations of it, but the one that specifically applies to Mary Wives of Windsor is each parent choosing a suitor for their daughter, usually based on money or status. So we have Master Page wanting Slender, and then we have Mistress Page wanting the French Doctor. As Legat put it. Another standard form of intrigue plot is one in which a pair of young lovers win each other after outwitting their parents, who have been trying to make mercenary matches for them. At this period, the Protestant middle class insistence that marriage was a dignified and important institution and ought to be undertaken carefully with an eye to the personal happiness of the couple was asserting itself against the older view still practiced by the aristocracy of marriage as a property transaction. What we see here is this, an exploration of this budding idea that like, no, you try to marry for love if you can at least marry for happiness. Honestly, I think that's an interesting perspective because if it's between marrying for love or marrying for money, it all it sounds very cut and dry. But I like that the idea that there's a conflict between marrying for love and marrying for happiness. What do you mean? Sometimes uh, young people fall deeply in love with the exact wrong person. Oh, I thought you were talking about specifically in reference to this play. No. I think the point is that both her parents are trying to make more of a... A mercenary. Yeah, more of an aristocratic match. Of course, though, most city comedies went beyond the love plot, the finding love, and went into... What is marriage like, though? Another commonality with sitcoms. 
So here we get into kind of the main plot of Merry Wives of Windsor, and that is Mistress Paige Ford and Falstaff and him (laughs) trying to woo them separately and them finding out that he's trying to woo both of them and being grossed out and then being like, wait a minute. Let's mess with this guy. And also Mistress Ford's husband because he's a crazy jealous butthead. Yes. As we said earlier, sex was often the topic of city comedies, especially when it was used to teach a lesson. And that's definitely what we see here with Merry Wives of Windsor. Yeah, trust your wife. But they also made sure to have some fun along the way. And this is Legat talking about essentially what we see in Merry Wives of Windsor as a trope. The basic situation is simple and familiar. Two chaste wives repel a seducer and shame a jealous husband. But the assertion of chastity is achieved without preaching and in a spirit of fun. Yeah, they're not going on and on about how virtuous they are. They're like, ew, this guy's gross. Let's toss him in the river. Well, first they teach the lesson of Falstaff through like a series of hilarious pranks. But they also teach a lesson to Master Ford by making him appear ridiculous. He keeps showing up thinking he's going to catch his wife. They just keep embarrassing him, handing him an apparently old lady for him to beat. It's Falstaff, don't worry. So what we see in city comedies is as opposed to, as you mentioned earlier, the morality plays is that they hit all the right notes without getting preachy there's another legat quote that again i think sums up mary wives of windsor very well the practical jokes amusing in themselves are also appropriate comic punishments but the victim of the joke has a certain resilience which ensures that not all the laughter is against him this is kind of what we talked about before that it's done in a fun way literally there's a scene where you find out ford is now in on the game and he's like laughing with everybody he's like how silly i must have looked how could i not trust my wife keys keys I think I think usually when we see that scene in the theater, there's a certain proportion of wives in the audience that are like, uh-huh. I mean, probably. But I think also when then when we turn to Falstaff, the purpose of Falstaff has always been laughter. Oh, yeah. And you see that even among his group of friends, which he, I think, I think there are times he, they are laughing at him. But he joins in in a way that makes it feel like it's not, cruel it's just funny yeah right up until the end of henry the fourth part two i i think that with falstaff because the character is designed to be laughed at to be a source of mockery even to himself a lot of the time yeah falstaff is constantly making fun of himself and at the same time severely overestimates his desirability because that is the construct of the character, he's going to survive this. Like, yeah, Ford looks silly, but Falstaff is, like, physically abused. <laughs> he's stuffed into a laundry <laughs> basket and thrown into a river, dressed up as a woman and beaten, and then, like, taken into the woods at night and terrified. And I think they also were, like, poking him with sticks or something. Now, we appreciate it because he's committing the worst offenses, and also, like, it's Falstaff. That's the whole point. Yeah. I mean, we're basically introduced to Falstaff when his friend robs him after he commits a robbery. Yeah, which is hilarious. It's great. Like, everybody plays jokes on Falstaff, and you're just like, well, it's funny to me too because as an audience we all know that while Falstaff was quote unquote taught a lesson I 
doubt he retained it. Yeah, he did, he was taught he did not learn. Obviously, city comedies went so much further than what we see in Mary Wives of Windsor, but Mary Wives of Windsor is a pretty clear-cut example of a city comedy. Yeah, and I think it also really illuminates some things. Like, you, you do have some plays that involve more rural, lower-class people, but they're in the middle of something completely turning their lives over, like... A noble woman has hidden in our town. Whereas with this, this is just the everyday lives of uh, Mistress Ford and Paige. Part of what I love about Merry Wives of Windsor is that, like, Mistress Paige and Mistress Ford are having none of anybody's nonsense. Oh, totally. And they seem like the dutiful housewife who stays at home and takes care of the dinner, but then, like, they're just up to, like, pure deception and shenaniganery. A lot of it is them being like, oh, we're just such lovely housewives. Excuse me, did you think I was going to be unfaithful? Realize, reading their letter to Falstaff and being like, that butthead. Like, they were grossed out already, but now they're like, mm, he must be taught. Mistress, Mistress Page, when uh, she dislikes Master Page's uh, choice for uh, their daughter's husband, she's like, mm, no. No, we're going to go with my choice. And he's like, I, I, I'm the man. <laughs> and she's like, we'll see. Although she also doesn't get her French doctor. She also doesn't get her French doctor. The but French doctor is just there for the great accent. The fight with the Welsh teacher. Yeah. But, you know, as I said, what's terribly interesting is, well, this is a great city comedy. And Shakespeare only wrote one. I don't think he liked them. I'd assume not. But he was so good at them. Maybe he was like, city comedies are dumb. Look, I can make a great one without even trying. You think Johnson was a little bit pissed? I think Johnson was really pissed. Do you think Johnson is like still pissed in the afterlife? Like, they're still performing your shitty city comedy, but none of mine? Well, Johnson, maybe you should have written them to be acted instead of writing, writing them to be read. I think I would also be remiss that as we talk about Shakespeare writing his one and only city comedy to not touch on the lore of why Merry Wives of Windsor was written. Do tell! So the story goes that following Henry IV, Parts one and two. Queen Elizabeth loved Falstaff so much that she wanted a play about Falstaff falling in love. <laughs> so Shakespeare wrote Mary Wives of Windsor. Which is absolutely not about him falling in love. No, it's not, but it's still great. Yeah, that's a good story. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com slash EP34 for even more information on city comedies, the middle class, and changing opinions on marriage. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. 
Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little Agadine, still and contemplative in living art.